0: Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, dark darkrooms, woodshops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world, and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concept, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. For the eighth episode of Craftsmanship, I again decided to do something a little different. I partnered with the nonprofit Brooklyn Research on a talk series titled Tradecraft, where I interviewed fabricators in front of a live audience. This episode is an unedited recording of that event. For the first live interview, I spoke with our hosts and the three founding members of Brooklyn Research, Alex Dodge, Ezra Longinus, and Johnny Liu. The nonprofit began life as a for-profit research and development lab, working with artists and corporate clients to fabricate interactive systems, prototypes, and technological experiences. I spoke with them about how to invent a device that measures people's heads, the difference between working on corporate events such as a Super Bowl or with Google versus an artwork, and the integration of technology into museum exhibition design. It was very interesting to hear their thoughts on digital artwork conservation through emulation versus replication and the joys of digital archeology. span The images referenced in the interview can be seen on Craftsmanship's Instagram account and video of the interview can both be seen on craftsmanshippodcast.com under events and on brooklynresearch.org. I begin the interview by asking each of the members of Brooklyn Research to introduce themselves to the audience and talk a little bit about their experience. Well,
1: I'm I'm Alex Dodge. I'm one of the three founders of... Um, for from research, uh, Johnny Liu, Azer. Um, I'll just say a little bit about myself and then they can say um, where they came from. Uh, my background is fine art. I studied painting um, and then lived in New York for a number of years and then eventually decided to finally go to grad school. Um, and I decided not to do an MFA. I, I went to a program at NYU called ITP, um, which is sort of a hard to describe program. Um, I guess it's uh, maybe interactive technologies of some sort. Um, So it's creative, but it's also technical. It's also code um, heavy, um, hardware heavy, depending on what people want to make it. And that's how I met these two guys. So that's kind of. um... All right, Uh, I'm Johnny Liu, uh, Esquire.
2: Uh, I have a computer science and film background. Uh, I also went to ITP. It was very exciting. I had not touched computers for a very long time between uh, my undergrad and uh, going to ITP because I hate computers.
0: Look at you now. (laughs) Look at me.
2: Really trapped myself into the golden cage or something like that. Uh, But anyhow, uh, I like stuff now, like computers, so I'm good.
3: I'm cool. Uh, I'm Ezra Longinus. Uh, my background was mostly uh, music and music performance, which is uh, probably one of the most, this is probably a stupid degree that I could have done better with in undergrad. But um, the, uh, I went to Bard College there and was sort of building a lot of electronic pieces there. Um, and it sort of grew into what is now, when I went to ITP, doing more like electronic and EE work. Um, so building a lot of circuits and things and where it started with like audio and performative audio type things, um, and then sort of grew into digital electronics and then building, uh, sort of systems and, uh, working with these guys to help others, artists, entrepreneurs, and, uh, institutions to build like custom devices and,
1: uh, programs and things. I guess we could talk about like the origin story of Brooklyn research, which was not in any way really planned. Um, in the sense that we didn't really have a clear vision um, in many, I mean, I, I guess like the, the most important thing from the very, I guess, but though from the very beginning, though there were, were always kind of two entities, like in the sense that there was a for-profit side and there wasn't, there is a nonprofit side and those were fairly early on. Um, uh, something that we thought we wanted to do. However, we didn't really understand what the nonprofit was supposed to be doing for a few years out. But the, the for-profit side was something that really the three of us fell into. And I think that the main thing was that, um, whereas a lot of the other friends that we had from grad school were going to places like Google, Microsoft, um, you know, fairly, um, standard kind of corporate trajectories yeah and then i mean we just i think that we were among other things being good friends we just didn't feel like we wanted to go to to go into that space um and go into the corporate kind of track so we ended up um sort of <laughs> uh scrounging for work wherever we could find it and eventually we got handed a job um that uh, another friend from itp uh, couldn't do and it was a pretty weird, um, thing from, you know, a creative agency, um, called, uh, I forget who the agency was, but the client that was, was who was relevant, was relevant. relevant, Yeah. So relevant was like a a creative agency and, uh, they had a client new era, um, making popular hats that people, you know, leave the, the tags on and stuff like that. Um, And they wanted to have something for uh, the Super Bowl as a promotional thing where you could go into a booth and essentially there would be a system that would predict your hat size without touching you. And I think we were pretty desperate for work. And um, we were like, oh, yeah, sure, we can do that. Um, And, you know, after the initial kind of ideas of like using some kinds of um, imaging um, imaging, you know, technologies like infrared or, um, millimeter wave and all these ideas of trying to see through people's, uh, clothing and hair to be able to kind of figure out on an optical level, like how big their, their heads were, we realized none of that stuff works because, you know, even hair has a heat signature for the most part and millimeter wave, which would have done it. It uh, was just not something that we could build um, on our own in that much of time. I mean, like, also the time frame here was, like, what was it? Like, about a month. It was about a month to do right. this. So It was um, also like extremely expensive to buy a lot that.
2: <laughs> so we had to do it for a very cheap price. It was yeah. actually, we actually didn't know what we were doing. So we actually had someone come back around and say, like, hey, uh, your price is too low. I'm afraid that the company won't take your bid just because. This looks ridiculous.
1: They were scared. I mean, they like we <laughs> because we didn't know how to price anything at that point. We we're like, well, you know.
0: Were you guys a, f- a formed company for this, or did you?
1: No, I don't think that we were technically formed at that
2: we point. We were. Yeah. I think we were technically maybe formed. maybe we for the yeah. insurance. Oh, oh okay. one of the yeah. things is that yeah. to take the space, we needed insurance for That's the true. landlord, yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: and no one wanted to put that under their name, which is reasonable. And so we formed a company, and uh, that somehow then had to go on a contract together, and then somehow now we are
1: a company. Company. <laughs> seven years. Seven years later. Was um, that
0: this space, or were you guys?
1: Yeah, it was, it was the, the smaller space. space. Like so, at some point we expanded, but so in any case, like with that job, though, the cool thing that really came out of it was, I think, the ability for us to disagree. But eventually synthesized something that really did work, and so we ended up um, taking a really interesting um, kind of tack on it, which was Johnny figuring out how Johnny and Azer really figuring out how to use uh, a Kinect camera that was able to give us basically real-world scale, so we'd know the the distance that someone was, and then we could use that um, using the infrared, but then using the the um, the normal vision, vision camera or um, the RGB camera um, to actually track um, the facial features on someone. And so now this stuff is actually, you know, many years later, like this is, you know, China and a lot of other people using um, uh, facial recognition to, to get identity and uniques from something like that. But at the time, we took that and because we could get real world, um, you know, size of like people's eyes, mouth, and the different measurements between that stuff. Uh, we found, uh, my job was actually just doing research, trying to find data sets that were, would be usable. So we actually found a what was called an anthropomorphic data set from the U.S. military that had become um, declassified or open to the public.
0: Where do you find these so things?
1: So that was actually, I think it was University of Michigan. It was okay. on a server that they had. And I, so I was able to just grab the entire data set. And so from there, um, Johnny... I think Johnny was able to take that, and we and we were using an R, which is a, uh, a, um, it's a programming language stati- yeah, for, it's for statistics, for statistics right? and, and for um, data exploration, really. And so we were able to, to create an equation that you would use different things that we could measure with the camera um, and basically do a linear regression to figure out, well, we don't know what the head size is, and again, remember, this is just to get a hat size, but <laughs> but we could figure out how to measure different parts of the face and then get a fairly good statistical model that would predict their head circumference. And it worked, like, decently within, yeah, it worked, like, you know, like, well. plus or minus a half. Of
2: and there's also a point. lot of uh, theatricality to it. There's, like, the entire, like, screen you're in front of, and then I would, like, you would take, like, your uh, a 3D projection of your face and spin it around, and then... People were like, "Wow!" And then people. I think Acer was out there at the Super Bowl, and someone was afraid that they was taking their DNA, which it is. <laughs> I want. I want to clarify. It yeah. is absolutely taking your DNA. And I'm selling that data.
3: I mean, there's also you can sort of see it here. The 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 kiosk was called Fit Test, and there were. Uh, a few people was set up in the Super Bowl in this, you know, like uh, and as people were working by, they didn't really know what it was and it just said fit test. And there's a couple people that were like, I already know it'll work out. Oh, I don't need to have this kiosk tell me that. <laughs> and just like slump around. But um the one thing that was it did it worked about seventy-five percent of the time. Um unfortunately, uh the outliers, which are like the NFL football players. It uh, didn't work so well with because they're outliers. <laughs> so uh, a lot of when they would have like famous football players to come to like check out what their hat size was, it would be like wildly off. Because uh, they're cause like they're,
0: super athletes. They're the like, yeah, their proportions just, like, just didn't
3: work. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it would be, yeah, their their head size was generally pretty huge. And you know, they're just like, they're, they don't really make hats like that. And you're like, oh, and I don't know, 7 and 5 eighths? uh so those uh, like in some some of those like weird like key moments and stuff it would be a little like odd and also the president of new era it like never got his hat size right it got everybody else in new eras hat size right but the president of new eras didn't get it right which just means he's an athlete yeah sure mm-hmm. good good for uh, me. but uh, other than that it wound up working actually pretty well and it was one of the more successful um uh, projects that we had where it wound up like going not just to the super bowl but uh the MLB fan fest um it went to a bunch of other sort of uh, like draft, you know, and there was a kickoff for a thing that this was going to be like a product product that they wanted to they wanted to build out.
0: So when you anyway. when when you talk about it as a product, do they own this now, or can you use some of the things that you created in other projects?
1: That was, I mean, I think that a lot of this kind of work, you know, it's uh, on the legal side of it, depending on on the contracts that you get they'll be you know explicit that all code base anything that you make all ip potential ip is, is owned by them but oftentimes this stuff is is very very um very very loose the way that the the contracts will go where it's like um it doesn't it's not entirely clear where a lot of that that's you know just kind of depends on who you work with because we've worked with some people where it's like yeah we can it seems like we can take this and keep on going with it on our own. It's especially
2: true with events, because they're not expecting this to have any legs. That's right,
0: yeah. Yeah. How much of the stuff you work on is event-based?
2: I would say maybe about, I mean, monetarily, like half. But time-wise, maybe like a quarter.
3: Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe work hours, it's probably closer to half too because a lot of the event stuff is fairly uh, time compressed mm-hmm. so you wind up working a lot harder oh, under true. a shorter period of time mm-hmm. where some things are maybe a little bit more lax
0: Has it ever not worked Oh yeah come time I, mean, of the event? I, I think that's
1: something to be said about the, this, the, that initial project was it was not easy but it was also the fact that we had a month and we pulled it off and it was pretty remarkable, and I think that it kind of gave us some early confidence, maybe too much confidence in some ways, because in other subsequent projects, you know, we sometimes they don't work out, and sometimes it's really scary. But, but yeah.
2: I, I want to clarify: <laughs> for the vast majority of time, it does work because out. We are very hard. you were able to fix it, and yeah. we yeah, are absolutely. much better now than we used to be. Not that we we're bad in the past; we were no. stellar in the past no. and stellar now.
0: Right. I mean, making a thing that's never been made before that's by tough. an immovable yeah. deadline—you yeah. can't. Um, succeed hundred percent.
3: They should have the just end. moved the Super Bowl date. Yeah. For it <laughs> for this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it that, that does. It no, does no, happen no. where there's where something. Generally, what happens is that it doesn't. It's a managed expectation of something. So, like, what the idea of what it is is slightly different from like the the final execution. There's only been very very few times where it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. And generally, the reasons for that aren't necessarily due to us, but due to some other external factor that has, you know, that either pushed us out of the, you know, that there is like the installation date or something didn't happen or something else canceled or there was a a massive failure on some other, like the Wi-Fi just doesn't work. And so, (laughs) yeah, I
1: mean, that's, I mean, I think that's another thing is like, you know, when we were just starting out to note to anyone who wants to get into this kind of work, which is that, you know, oftentimes you can get bullied by, um, by the client, um, in a way where, you know, I think it took us a couple of years to really realize, um, like, learn how to stand up and say, or, you know, to expectation, like, that's not physically possible. Um, and, you know, this is possible. And being able to push back on people when they're demanding things that are not possible within a certain amount of time or just not possible like by the, by you, the, law by of the laws of physics. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> can you talk about the kind of language you use when you're talking to a client? Like, what... Um, mm-hmm what things do they expect to be possible that don't work? Or like, is there a way you approach talking about integrated systems to people that maybe have high expectations of them?
3: I think it really depends on the client. Honestly, some clients are very um, aware of what, like uh, from a technical standpoint of what it is that you're trying to, what they're trying to achieve. And then there's some that aren't. And it's, it's a really, it's a variant degree of like how knowledgeable that client is. And then uh, it's, it's kind of a corollary of like how knowledgeable they are about the topic that they want to build, build and then also how recalcitrant they are about their idea. So if it's something where they have this idea and they're not that knowledgeable about it, they tend to be more adamant about it working and being amazing.
0: Um, Can you talk about a project where they had an idea and it like transformed into something else during, during the conversation?
3: Oh, in during the conversation. Hmm. Um, I think we've had ideas where there's um, uh, and Johnny can attest to this, where we had some uh, installation work and they were trying to figure out some ideas, you know, of like how they're going to present something and they've, like, sort of not stolen our idea, but, like, sort of taken some, you know, whether it be, uh, like, a projection on fog or something, or, like, doing something that's, like, non-standard that we were sort of presented with them with, and then all of a sudden... Well, that's just, like, straight theft. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. But, like, it it changes that where it becomes as if, like, this idea that they had that they were, like, working on for whatever presentation or, or display then sort of morphs into, like, that's what we've always thought you know that kind of um and it's a little bit in the fog of like the conceptualization of like whether or not you know how much of it was like preordained and how much of it was like us sort of pushing them along that that route um i don't know if that really answers your question
0: no it, it does also i feel like it sounds like um your description involves a longer conversation of like pitching and a back and forth which doesn't always happen in like fine art fabrication contexts.
1: That's true. I think sometimes the concept is, is more movable or malleable in a lot of these, especially, I mean, so we do, so I guess like one thing to just like mention is that we do a lot of work directly for artists making um, work for artists, whether it's, you know, interactive work or work that just needs specific uh, software or, um, or hardware uh, expertise. So, you know, um, and then we do stuff for you know big clients, um, corporate people. So it, it is a very different dialogue when you're working with someone. You know, like when we do projects for Google, um, Google doesn't have the budget constraints that artists do. Mm-hmm. So that's never something that's a pro- like that that has to go back and forth. Um, whereas um, you know the, the technical sides of um, of the project are something that can be negotiated. Like well. You know, if you want this to be... Um, so this was a project that we did with uh, Google for International Women's Day um, with uh, trying to make something that would be fun for people coming to the conferences that they were sponsoring around the world. And uh, in the end, we made, like, this thing that would print out a badge, um, an ASCII art badge uh, with yeah. either an Ada Lovelace quote um, or you'd have your own... Um, well, it was like a speech-to-text, like, so, yeah. Yeah. By, like, ASCII
2: art, if anyone's unfamiliar with that, it's that it would take an image of you and then convert it into, like, a plain text uh, representation of it, so, like, all these, uh, if you look at this image, these are all, like, actual, like, characters, like, little, like, A, B, C, 1, 2, 3 kind of stuff, if you look closely at it, that's not a close-up, and so it would do that, and then it also would use speech-to-text where we would talk into the phone, and then they would transcribe that and then print this little badge for you as uh, for the conference and this is also an example of uh, a project where we were basically just asked to give ideas and they would choose one from the bucket and they're like can you do this one so this is one of i think seven or eight ideas we pitched to them in like a very
3: short time frame yeah. yeah, with the constraint being that time, I don't think budget wasn't was the issue. Was more just the what you, can you pull off within the I time?
1: Think, yeah, period. it wasn't so much yeah. a budget, but it was also just like can, how can you make the system? Um, can you build the system and something that we can roll out around the world um, to I don't know twenty different locations or something like that yeah. simultaneously? So it was you know it had to be fast, but also scalable and something that we could ship around the globe. So.
0: Yeah, it seems like robust means different things for different
3: clients.
1: That's true, yeah. Um,
3: Um, But one thing, yeah, actually to answer your point, I think one of the things, the the earlier question of things that sort of changed over time is generally a lot of the artist projects that we wind up doing, especially because they have a longer tail, Mm -hmm. um, as they start developing with the physical like uh, thing that we're building for them, it winds up defining their art or how they're going to sort of interact with it or how they're going to set up that interaction, and so that winds up changing over the period of it being built. So anything that we did for like London O'Connor, who's a, a musician, and his like this reactive light piece that he was playing with, that sort of informs his like uh, programming. Oh, cool. there you go. Um, so there's this is like one the, this cube that uh, Alex uh, built um, this light cube that then forms a the performance. But that was very much until it was built and we sort of work with it. That
1: sort of helped him to like focus that. Or
0: yeah, do you feel like once it physically existed, his it gave him ideas and it there was, like, exactly yeah. I mean, and he the, came
1: to it with like ideas that were not really possible. We're like, well, we can't make it so that you can. We couldn't make the the cube a full-on polyphonic uh, MIDI controller, but we could do certain kinds of things that when you touch different sides of it, it would would activate different parts of his MIDI uh, for his live performances. And that's really what he wanted, to have something that would react, be able to be kind of playable, or at least to be able to fire cues for his live performance and then also have this um, color um, sync with the music and things like that. So, um, yeah, that was like coming... With, to us with certain ideas and would say, well, like, yeah, this is this is what we can do. Mm-hmm. And then he would, I mean, then he built his performance around it. So it became really a part of a tool that he started to work with in that way. Yeah.
0: Have you worked um, on projects with him since? Like his, now that he yeah, kind of I wish knows I, your capability? I wish
1: I had pictures of what I built. Um, the monolith? The monolith, <laughs> yeah. So the last one, I wish I had, um, some of the the sketches that he came but he basically came to us with this crazy idea he was like i want it to be like the monolith from 2001 but it folds down when it was no first it's like it's a backpack Uh that's the monolith from 2001 and then it docks onto a dock on the stage and then it folds down and then the lid comes off Oh, sorry, I, I forgot one of the steps, which is like there's a laser that comes out and scans the audience, oh, yeah. Yeah. and then it folds <laughs> down, and then it opens up, and his keyboard's inside, and he sits down and then plays it. Uh-huh. Um, so, and, and at first, I was like, oh, I don't know, I think that there's a lot of things that we, we need to kind of put into
0: manage expectations, <laughs> yeah. But then,
1: in the end, so we, we built it once and we built it like a tank, it was way too heavy, not backpackable at all, and uh, then. Um, I kind of realized that you know we needed to have version two, and so I built it more like an airplane, thin aluminum, like aircraft aluminum. Uh, the whole thing was laser cut, bent, and then uh, welded together. So it was super light chassis that was backpackable, and it had his keyboard and a whole lighting system inside it. And you know he's used it in live shows where he'll walk out on the stage with these backpack straps, and then dock it and lock it in, and then it folds down and it works exactly the way that he kind of envisioned it to. And it was sort of like he convinced me that that was actually possible because, you know, it just seemed like such an insane idea to do it. And then, um, it, yeah, we built it, though. So.
0: Do you guys build all the hardware in this space, or do you use...?
1: Uh, it's pretty limited. Our shop can do, we have a, a small CNC, so I think that uh, a lot of the work we can do tests for, but then when we go into real production, you know, if we're doing laser cut metal, then we send it to uh, people in, in Jersey that we work with and then other shops in Brooklyn that we like to work with. Um, so especially for something like that, um, you know, I did all the designs and then send them out to different shops and then yeah. have it, you know, cut and welded a different place and then powder coated a different place. And then everything comes back here for assembly. Um, but yeah. Cool.
0: Um, do you always produce the hardware along with the technology or are sometimes you
1: just doing the tech the hardware like circuits or hardware like uh, both okay well Azure is, <laughs> is has been doing a lot of uh, it does most of the the board design uh, that, so yeah
3: yeah I think we th- it tends to be that there's a lot of um, Depending on what the use case is, because sometimes it's very, it's a very limited use case or very like weird like ask of what they're, and so there's no there's no one unit that sort of makes it happen, mm-hmm. you know. So like it might be something for IT cosmetics, and they want the room to like you know, oscillate in different red colors, you know, with these big dials that they have. Mm -hmm. And like, in theory, you could figure out some weird DMX system that you could buy that could sort of do it, but it also has to fit within this container and this thing. And it winds up like, yeah, you just build it. Uh, And so you want to, a lot of times, not because, like, I want to be a hero or anything, it's just that, like, it's the only thing you can really, you want to, it sort of has to be custom, Mm -hmm. or um, if we did something for, I don't know what the next slide is, I don't know.
1: Well, I I don't know, I could pull up Shire or something.
3: Oh, yeah, if you have the Shire Mm -hmm. one, where they they wanted a um, a matrix style, um, oh, no, Shire, the eye one, that was also, uh, I think the other one, no, Abbott Cosmetics was the, or Abbott um, Chemicals was the jump sensor one, but... Um, yeah, the uh, Shire, uh, which is up here somewhere. So Shire touch. was
1: like they they wanted. Yeah. So this thing was well. completely um, done in house in terms of um, the three D printing, the, the hand finishing, and these were like these sort of headsets that would take pictures of your um, of your iris and then do these uh, visualizations. This is all for a um, uh, it's like It was like a uh, pharmaceutical that was doing like um, eye drops. And this was like this whole event that they did on the High Line. Um, wow. And so we built this crazy eye camera. Um, so it's
0: taking the pattern of your iris and then producing doing, a design from it? It would or?
1: do like yeah. a color sampling of that and okay. then create like this um, visualization projection on um, this video animation. So this basically. is like a portrait
0: of yeah. the person? Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. yeah. Um but that was something that was like you know completely customized um, to be able to do that, and a lot of and that was a project that involved heavy on you know on Azer side doing the, um, uh, the the actual circuits uh, to make the the lighting actually work, and then on me like doing all the optics, which was a lot of work to make that. Um, and actually, but then you also have this this real um, physical level of interaction design to make sure that people look in the right place to take a picture, because people are going to look all over the place unless you give them like this visual cue to look here. So one eye would be looking at a logo that would give them the the visual cue, and then the other eye would have a camera um, flash a a light in it and take a picture really quick, um, and then give you a good, reliable um, iris picture.
0: Can you talk about um, how You made the decisions for the visual based on the, like, what was the relation?
1: I mean, mostly it was just like getting something that was central. So you mm-hmm. just had to have something that was illuminated in the right way, and then people put on this thing, and then your intuitive... Um, I think that there's also uh, verbal cues that people give. Yeah. It's like, look at the logo, and then press the button, and then
0: But like the that. pattern yeah. that was oh. made from the iris, what, what were the rules?
1: We didn't actually do much of uh, the actual software. Okay. So we did all the hardware on that. So, that, so that was, yeah.
2: Yeah, a lot of projects we were like on one portion of, rather than the entire thing. And which portion we do, whether it's hardware or software, for, uh, for electronics, that actually varies quite a bit project from project. Sometimes mm-hmm. we do like the whole farm to table. Sometimes we're just doing a portion.
0: Is there um, a project that you did? <laughs> I love the term farm to table. <laughs> farm to <laughs> table that you could talk about.
2: Uh, the Google one with the that one was definitely the entire project, which was I and mean, was the ASCII art one. In terms so, of like right. creative. To um, Yeah, that went from actually pitching the idea to actually finishing it yeah the entire thing.
0: Do you guys enjoy that process of being able to come up with ideas and then fulfill them? Or do you like what's the difference between I that think that's, model that's and that's
1: the most fun thing to do? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. yeah, because I mean and that's been the case. I mean, it's been great working with Google. A lot of stuff we've done with Google we can't show because it's not stuff that we can talk about. But um, but that's been the great thing is like being able to, to give ideas to people and then have them be funded and being able to carry, carry them through to the end. Like, that's, that is really fun. I mean, for me, having a background um, in art, like it is fun to work with other artists too. Mm-hmm. However, it can be a real stretch because the budgets are not there always. And so it's oftentimes a compromise of trying to, or it just hurts to do it. Yeah, you know, and but it's fun, but it hurts. Yeah, so that's that's the reality, which sucks. But
0: what's um, your favorite artist project? Or you don't have to play favorites. What with which (laughs) child do
3: you like the best?
1: I mean, we could. I mean, I don't know. The um, Mika Mika Tajima. We've done a bunch. We're we're doing one right now with Mika Tajima. But um, the this one was really fun. Uh, This was a project in um, Long Island City that she got through Sculpture Center. And essentially, it was a large pink bathtub-looking structure. And it was a temporary public sculpture that was up for uh, the duration of the summer. Um, And so, again, we did a certain portion of it. Uh, We didn't do the physical fabrication, but we did the uh, code and integration to uh, basically the color of this piece responds to uh, the global um, uh, index uh, of gold that was being traded yeah, like something, the change the of change, the, value. the change of the value, right. Yeah. So um, Johnny uh, did...
2: Well, I translated it uh, from an API that another person, Eric, uh, worked on. And I would take that and translate it to color values, right. Right, to program these.
1: And I was basically building the, the, uh, built the LED system to figure out how to make an LED system that can get really wet. So the steam that is generated there is actually just water vapor It's super high. Uh, pressure atomized water, that would create this steam effect, and then uh, we had to create. Uh, all this stuff is going to get rained on. It's going to get be outside and beat up for you know three or four months. So, uh, so I I built like a an LED system that could really take a beating and be uh, submerged underwater for a long time.
0: Um, this piece has to be um, robust for the time it's out. It, yes. like outside. I
1: mean, me and Azer actually built that. Yeah. But, but
0: then it also, you know, it's an artwork, so then yeah. it has to have a life, um, like if it was bought or by, in a museum, can you talk about like um, making things for conservation or longer right. lives in fine art versus like an event-based?
1: That's, that's a big distinction because um, when we do make something for an artist, um, that, you know, in the case of this piece, you know, it's possible that she might want to... Um, you know, bring this piece back to life in a different context. Mm-hmm. Um, as it was, it was only meant to exist for, you know, three or four months. But when we do make other work um, for, you know, so this is a piece that, um, that Johnny worked on heavily, which was a uh, um, real-time uh, smoke simulation. So this is smoke that's being generated um, entirely on a simulated computer system that would react to, again, uh, Internet um, uh, data in real time. And so, you know, we were talking about that recently the fact that, you know, this thing to be able to survive, to be able to, let's say, someone buys it, um, how is it going to be able to uh, last in perpetuity? And you go into multi multiple layers of what um, what needs to be maintained, uh, what does the artist intend? So I think the biggest thing is that, you know, the, in in terms of conservation, in um, in art, art, uh, art historical conservation, in an in institutional um, sort of uh, standards, there's generally uh, this this two-sided um, kind of uh, scope of, the, of looking at things, and it's either emulation or replication. Replication means that you have to build, rebuild the system, or conserve that system, um, meaning software, hardware, uh, the display technologies, all of this stuff. So like in 10
0: years, you just rebuild
1: the piece. You'd have to, or you'd have to source these things that may not be easy to find. So like if you had a a computer system, um, that, you know, used a specific graphics card, you'd have to source that. If you were trying to be true to the artwork in the replication sense Mm -hmm. or to replace it or to maintain it. Whereas like if you have the artist's consent to say, um, emulation is fine, meaning that whatever can achieve that, um, in some way is fine as long as it looks enough like that. So I think that you know, oftentimes when you see uh, you know work by artists like Nam June Pike that you know those TVs just don't exist anymore. Yeah. Then you have to figure out something else that's close enough. Um, whereas you know Johnny can talk a little bit more on on the software side of a piece like this that he built, where it's just like you know it's you know you were using you know not not officially supported uh, code to be able to make it work, right? I right.
2: was like using an experimental branch of code that's not officially supported because it was the only thing that I could use to achieve the effect at the time.
0: What does that mean if it's not officially supported?
2: Like it was never widely released. It's just something that basically a company decided that they wanted to experiment with this. And so I found it and I started experimenting with it. It was the only thing that could get me the results I needed that time. The problem with that is that like two, three years later, this is much easier to do. But the code is stuck there, and if I want to upgrade that and change it over, it'd be an extremely large amount of work, and also be slightly different in a lot of small senses. What
0: different. are some of the small? It's just like se- like um like different operating system. Can you talk? Yeah, about, it's like,
2: like different op- So there's like a lot of layers. There's different hardware, which is like the computer itself. There's different operating systems. And like which version of like what operating system you have. There's different versions of the code that it's built on. And then there's different versions of like other kind of libraries, I guess the code uses that are no longer supported. So you have to have all these versions kind of aligned because they're all built for a specific time period and a specific kind of version of each other.
0: I mean it seems like that problem is universal, not just in like fabricating for a client, but like all technology, are they constantly chase, I mean, chasing the moment that it was made in? Well, I think Do one thing are... to
1: mention about like this one, the, the code that Johnny was using is coming from uh, technologies that are built for, for gaming, for video oh, yeah. gaming. This because, is the
2: Unreal Engine. It's yeah. based off the NVIDIA graphics card. And yeah. basically basically needs a certain kind of graphics card yeah. and a certain version which run way that I think some people are trying to conserve works like these are purely digital works is through what is called emulation, which Alex has mentioned before, which is like you are literally trying to mimic the exact kind of chips, like computer chips and the way they relate to each other on a software level. And so like there's like a lot of Super Nintendo emulators. Some of those are great because they are so accurate that like when you're playing a game and the real Super Nintendo game would actually start chugging because there's too much things going on. It would like slow down, flicker. These emulators also replicate that because they're basically constrained to act as if it was the actual system.
0: So for like a layman like me, yeah. <laughs> so you have a very powerful computer that's creating a controlled environment that right. mimics the controlled environment of the right. hardware and software of the time that you made the thing. So yeah, it's like it's- a mini-machine
2: A machine that replicates as many attributes of that other machine as possible. Okay. So it's actually, like, it's much more complex of a program because to mimic all these different hardware features going on is actually quite a bit of work.
0: But is it less work than making the whole piece again with current technology? I think...
2: Not necessarily. I think part of it is essentially that how much can you keep that fidelity if you remake it? Mm-hmm. Mm. Because there's all these small things, like like the algorithm. If I remake this, like the f- the smoke might just be slightly different for something that's kind of embedded into this new version I made, and whether or not I can find out what that difference is and change it is kind of like unknown.
0: Yeah. Do you tell Mika that when you're working on this, you're like this exists in this moment. Yeah, I did, but I, it'll be hard to recreate it five years from well,
2: now. Well, what I do is like I have a document, and then I do backups of things, and I try a list uh, what I was using at that time. So if for some reason, like a hundred years later, someone was like, "I really need this thing right now," uh, which, uh, sorry, that was too sarcastic. Someone might really need.
0: this. <laughs> yeah, it's like that happens in art. <laughs>
1: but, yeah, I mean, but uh, also, like, I think there's also interesting to back off another level and just like talk about the power politics and economics of what goes on between these things because you have to understand that you know these technologies being made for video games video games multi-billion dollar industry mm-hmm. they have certain things that are driving the development of these technologies that are not necessarily aligned with artwork or someone's specific artwork so you can see how those trajectories and paths will will go in one direction or the other and why it's very it can be very difficult to maintain something that is kind of side-chained or piggybacking on a technology that's not necessarily mm-hmm. meant to to do that. So. I mean on
2: the other hand it's also kind of nice that it is using commercial technology because if these Absolutely. like yeah. built like multi million dollar games, if they are to be preserved, I could probably maybe piggyback on parts of that. That's very true. Yeah. Otherwise if this is completely like proprietary, like I made this up like from like scratch, no one's gonna go look at it and say, like, Oh I'll make this again. No one will care.
1: It's true. I mean like it's also like, I mean there are benefits to open source versus, you know, profitable you know commercially backed um software projects you know it's highly unlikely that photoshop and illustrator for example will not exist in 10 years but you know an open source project could very well just like run out of community and it just might go nowhere eventually so it's uh it's you know there's also that
2: yeah support your open source friends
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's nice that um you work in a community that does value that. Like there's a lot of, um, I mean, there's maker culture that shares stuff, but to just be able to kind of exchange actual open source information seems like a really, um, like a different way of working as a group than say, I, I don't know if I could say that many like metal workers all come together and exchange techniques all the time. It's not such a like community based Right. people maybe
2: I feel like there are a lot of like websites now that are like YouTube videos of like some snotty like 17 year old telling you how to do like really technical stuff now though it's yeah it's very exciting like like here here's how you make like
3: slime I was like oh nice
0: I watched that one with the Elmer's glue and oh yeah.
3: god I love slime but there's also I mean there were like guilds and things like that that, yeah. that sort of existed that were precursors of, of that sort of open source but they're more protective like guilds Yeah. But I mean, if you were a metal worker in that metal work, like if you were, you know, again, there's, there's, and there is, I think some, some degree of that that's still within like you know, there's a lot of like collab spaces or other other places that are sort of open to like uh, that sharing of knowledge and not being that protective of like how you want to p- building or from a fabrication standpoint. That's yeah, it not, seems
0: like it's becoming more popular recently yeah. again, maybe. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but some of it's also just like the limitation, or like not limited, but they you're just your innate ability of to some of it is just it's out like how good are you w- with your hands at building at wow. you know craftsmanship or I you mean, know, code also
2: has a special place because it's like it's so easy to transmit that yeah. copy and replicate that whereas a lot of like any kind of physical handiwork or anything that requires like certain kinds of materials um, that's less accessible
3: yeah if you don't have the tools to do it you don't you can't like you can't be a luthier just from you know like copying and pasting Yeah, just from YouTube I yeah. mean
0: hearing you taking a data set from University of Michigan you don't have to go to the University of Michigan you can just Um, find it
1: and that wasn't the only only data set like I mean it was just you know like in that for that project I first found another an alternate data set that the CDC had but in order to get anything from the CDC we had to like go through so much red tape of filling out you know forms of you know disclosure forms just to in order for them to, to give us uh, facial three uh, D scan data, which it would it would have probably not been as good anyway, but so but yeah, you're right. Like there is a lot more stuff that that is accessible.
0: Um, what other places have you guys found stuff? From uh, I mean, like the game, like, uh, gaming like oh, gaming graphics, like, and like universities.
3: Mm-hmm. you mean like non standard mm-hmm. uh, uh, methodologies to, to achieving your ends? I mean like J store or something don't I don't know I mean it's some some of it's just like upcycling stuff so there's some some products or at least from my standpoint there's some things that are like there is like one time I we did a project I don't think we have it on here but there's a helmet lang project we did that they wanted to have um, track people that were going in front of their store this is when I went out to LA Um, and, uh, they had some issue where the lights weren't strong enough for whatever reason that they, they spec some lights for it and they weren't strong enough. And so then we had to run around and we wound up, I wound up running around to this like guitar store and it had this like crappy MIDI, uh, device that they, they got there. And I was able to like rip it apart and then use it for their like lighting controller Uh just because I knew that like you could sort of upcycle some of the stuff that this, you know, $20 part would allow for. Uh, this like n-tech thing and so then i could take that because i didn't have anything there mm-hmm. so there's some stuff that will round up like by you at least from my standpoint i can just steal something from something else sometimes or in a, in a pinch just like get you know take something that doesn't it wasn't meant for its original purpose and then like get it working for that
0: yeah are you um are you guys ever brought in on projects like say an artwork that needs to be changed or like a like a second or third stage
1: Uh, definitely i mean i yeah i won't name any names but because it's (laughs) but uh, oftentimes especially if it's artwork um by well well well-known artists that um are uh electronically based but you know are maybe not taken care of or conserved um, in the best way, then you know they have to call someone to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a really difficult thing is to come in and look at other people's work. Uh, oftentimes, uh, companies that built it or have gone out of business and they left behind different versions of software and you're not sure really where to start. Um, and on one level, it's like doing a kind of this digital... Archaeologies waiting, like going through um, things to figure out how they work. So that can be very difficult to figure out someone else's yeah. work without understanding fully what they did.
0: Can I ask what digital archaeology looks like? Like,
1: what do you... It's like getting onto a computer that's one day running a version of like Windows 2000 or something like this. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, a lot of time in uh, in log files, looking at what's um, system logs and other kind of specific like software logs to figure out what's not working, or uh, and then making a lot of guesses of how it was supposed to work. So, do you guys have computers that run really old? Well, oftentimes, like you find these things, and they're still just. I mean, again, this goes back to, to Johnny's point about uh, ancient software and, and operating systems. Is that you know, if you're a collector, um, I I don't want to dissuade collectors from collecting this kind of work. But when you do, please understand that part of it is—it's almost like having a pet or, you know, a living kind of um, entity that you have to—you have to take care of it. You need to upgrade it constantly. You need to maintain it in a way, backing up um, the systems in a way that can be uh, restored. Um, but for the most part, yeah, especially upgrading your operating system to a uh, new version, upgrading the whole system to a new computer, maybe once every five years wow. at the minimum, wow. something like that. So it's a huge investment, buying the artwork well, uh, initially. You know. I, but though that comes with its own risk, because if you upgrade your artwork, you can well, actually bring everything. Going so, again to that, yeah. So
2: so I think part of the thing is, yeah. the most important thing is, actually, is really to do the documentation. Like, write down what, right. the, what the version of everything you have is, what the configuration of everything you have is, because at least you can maybe one day someone can come back and configure it.
0: So do you give, like, a document when yeah. you work on a piece? Yes. You're like, this yeah, is yeah. your cheat sheet. Yeah, this is your, like, instructions for the wall drawing style.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. And good comments in the code, you know, that's always important. So it's, like, really important to have that because
2: anything slide left. So, like, if you did upgrade, like, every six months, it's very possible that one upgrade will
1: break everything behind it. I and mean, then at least you can step backward and try to... Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, yeah.
0: yeah. But, I mean, I think there's also... I've heard... Kind of the other bookend to the conversation that some artists are just like, that's the piece, yeah. and it's in the gallery and like
2: like a doesn't... planned
1: obsolescence. Well, but also, yeah. like
2: paintings don't last forever either. They, can they don't. Also be destroyed, uh, they, so. I
1: mean, I think that maybe that's another way. That's another way to conceptually approach it. Is saying like it's true. You know, oil paintings crack over time. Uh, you know, interactive projection, you know, works made in flash um, will just... It
2: might <laughs> well, actually be more beautiful. When your computer starts yeah. glitching the fuck out, you might be like, that's $1,010. Yeah. That's yeah, <laughs> I
1: mean, You could just accept it. It's like, sorry, these things don't last that long. Um, the technology that they're built with doesn't last that long. So you could do that. I think that probably... I know from, from a fact from working uh, in a gallery for many years that collectors don't see it that way. No. Yeah, so,
0: so, and you guys have worked for museums...
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, um, how do? Because normally for an object like an artwork, they would be in the mindset of it has to be perfect forever. But when you're working for them on um, like an exhibition design or something, what do they? Does does that need to stay perfect forever, or is it just the run of the show? And then it's usually
2: just the run of the show. But they want you to package it so that in case it travels, it can
1: still live. But there's usually not a requirement that it lives forever. Mm-hmm. So this was a, a project that we did uh, at the Met, in the Metropolitan Museum. Um, for the uh, Met Gala, which I went to, by the way. Well, it was for the full exhibition, not Who just did the gala. But, oh, my
2: god! <laughs> I looked fantastic. I also had really long hair. This for Charles it was James exhibit flowing. at the Costume Institute. Yes. Yeah. Are we not talking about me anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So this was uh, done with, this was actually, the idea was from Diller Scafridio Renfro, which was, uh, which is a, preeminent architectural firm. And so we helped implement these uh, robotic arms that will kind of move around with projectors mounted to them. And they were project things on top of these beautiful, uh, I guess, dresses by Charles James. And then on the bottom, there would like, be information displayed about it. And sometimes it would like pretend that the projector was a camera. And there are these beautiful renders on the bottom. So it would like set at certain places. And then it would kind of like focus your attention project onto that dress and kind of show you like maybe like a kind of idea of like what the skeleton and the like the ribbon in the dress looks like
1: and stuff but like it was that. like I, I mean I think you're understanding how like complicated the work you were doing was because it I mean it was kind of a beautiful hack because what was what was happening is that you had a video of uh, an image that was being projected on a 3d object like a dress and that had to be space warped so that it would look like it was scanning the dress and revealing something underneath it uh, his dresses had tons of crazy boning and structure that was in there and so it was almost like the projector was acting as though it had like this x-ray vision through the dress so that had to be the video had to be um, accurate in terms of spatial accuracy of the way that the projection was being distorted on top of a 3d body but then it also had to be accurate in terms of the motion track that the robotic arm was taking so a lot of those things had to work just perfectly for the illusion of of the projector to really make that happen. Could it you know?
0: respond to the dress if it was in a different position? Like
1: You have to make, make new it? content. We, but yeah. Yeah. These were
2: pre-programmed because there wasn't a sensor on them. Maybe today, or if we had more time, you could actually have sensors on them that dynamically responds to it. But at that
1: time, it was all pre-programmed. It took a long time program. I mean, it was a cool hack, and you know, it's like a trick, but it works beautifully when it worked. So. Yeah. yeah, it did work. It did work.
2: It's yeah. fantastic,
3: but yeah, for the museum, a, a lot of stuff um, that we wind up doing—it's the the documentation is is pretty important for that um, yeah. for us to have um, for them to for it to exist and yeah. Uh, but a lot of times, the run of the museum pieces are like six months or something along mm-hmm. those lines, or or anywhere from like one month to six months or something along that. Along those lines, with the idea that it might be pulled up again, but
0: yeah, I mean, um, if that arm's moving every day for six months, though, that's a lot of
3: yeah. you know, wear. and so you also have to spec out the equipment that like yeah, I mean, a those lot were of
1: it, real, real yeah. robotic arms that were made for They're, you know industrial, industrial use. So yeah, so they were okay with that kind of duty cycle, but yeah.
3: but yeah, that's where you have to sort of acknowledge. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, this was another museum piece that we wound up doing for the Jewish Museum. Um, I don't know why I'm talking about it because Johnny actually did the line share of the work on this one. Uh,
2: your voice is beautiful.
3: Thank you. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, do you want to explain what this is, Johnny? Oh, me? Okay. yeah. Since um, <laughs> since you worked on it, <laughs> this is also
2: with Diller Scofidio and Renfo, and so it's um, it's like essentially this projection screen that moves above a map of that's a layout of architecture of, of the Glass House. Um, Pierre R.O. By Pierre mm-hmm. R.O. Not the glass house, by Philip Glass. Wait, that's not true. <laughs> uh, um, and so it would kind of pretend that it's scanning through the house by moving over pieces of the architectural blueprint. And then it'd be like, I don't know if you've ever seen like a digital camera in a video game and you're kind of like clipping through. Or
3: like them. a CT scan
2: yeah, like a brain. Mm-hmm. And so you could see this cross section of the house and then kind of get an idea of like where... At certain points, this house would look like if you chopped it right through the middle, and at certain points it would stop. And these projections with these like cute little vignettes of people using the house would play on the left and right side. Uh, there's also like this little like laser scanner. That so would, like, that wall scanner.
0: moved back and forth.
2: Yeah, it's just like a projection screen with two projectors on both sides, and so you can look at it from both angles. So that's one. But I think this was also a temporary exhibit. But if we wanted to talk about longer uh, long term exhibits, this is supposedly well not this is a video. Yes. Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, this was a, a thing we wound up d- designing for the Tech Museum, which is still operational. Uh, with local projects, local with local
2: projects. Who did most of the design, but we did a lot of the kind of end game fabrication and
1: electronics. Yes. So this is like in San Jose, in the uh, the Tech Museum, and this is a like a children's museum uh, based around technology and science, but it's intended as mil- most children's museums for the exhibits to to last for you know very long years, um, and so things have to both be uh, Child resistant and uh, just be able to, to last. So.
3: Um, so, what it actually is, is there's this unit that you can sort of see them playing with here, um, and uh, there's a little rubber, um, uh, what we call devices that would then loop back into each other, which would create sentences. But, so, essentially, like if you connected three of them together, it would be when it sees red. It's sort of like
1: simulating uh, DNA. Yeah. Uh, um, so would,
0: those, those plastic things can be pulled apart and stick together.
1: Each yeah. one would be sort of like a, a different word in a, in a genetic sentence. So okay. you could say attracted to red or something like that. And then the creature that it, it would be creating on screen would be attracted to red or repelled from mm. red or something like that. And so you would see immediate results of your um, genetic engineering.
3: And then there's a whole environment on the wall of all the creatures that have sort of been made via uh, all the other people that have gone through it. Oh, so
0: there's like an archive of. Past well, it's not. It's creatures. more like an
3: environment, sort of like yeah. an ecosystem. Yeah, an ecosystem cool. that sort of is then created from all these other uh, sentences or DNA structures that are made from other. And you know, it helps to give some idea for uh, kids that are coming through of like how DNA sort of works in a very. You know, uh, not super reductive, but you know,
1: a little bit fairly simplified.
0: What is the lighting connections? Is that where they fit into each other? So there
1: was like a dock structure, and then there were these kind of sausage like links. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Plug in. So, you, I think that you, how many could you do? You could do like and so You can do like as many as you want. So, you could it. link a ton of different logical, genetic yeah, words. Yeah, make a together.
2: mega
0: it's,
1: creature.
2: It's generally like three that they would link, and then each one has a different shape, and it's flexible and it has this nice silicone feel, and they have this magnetic snap that they have. So, it's like fairly secure. But I think it's like it's such a good tactile feel to it. I think I, I was the only one that visited. And I
1: think most of the children all they wanted to do was make like a really, really long chain and beat each other with it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> This was such an immense amount of R and D to make that magnetic connection have just enough pull that it would snap to snap tight and kind of feel good. Yeah, but not like did. pinch your little fingers. And not or... pinch fingers, but also be strong enough so that it wouldn't pull out and, and to make the um the connection, the digital um communication that would have to yeah, link you, all these things together. Can you
0: talk about what's physically inside
1: Azer can talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, f- well, for the device
3: or for the, the for little little thing. The... So for the device, the each individual thing, um, oddly enough, it, each of the devices what they are is this, there's a it's a temperature sensor. It's in them. We're not really using the temperature sensor, but it does have this weird um, uh, uh, ability to. There's an easy way of getting this uh, ID or like uniform, like a uh, unique ID for each of the devices. So each of the devices they'll get like a little power and data and they just have a unique ID to them um, that, you know, that is then goes back to a database that just says let's, you know, that this ID corresponds to create green or whatever the whatever the part portion of the sentence is. And then in the hub itself is essentially a little brain that reads the ID mm-hmm. of everything that's being connected to it and on what hub to where. And then once there's a loop is made and it can detect when a loop has been made, like when you started one and then connected it to like that loop all the way to the end.
0: Oh, so to, to send the information. Yeah, when you it, had, when so you like
3: have uh, two yeah, yeah, connections. Yeah, exactly. okay. So when it when two connections have been made on on a on one loop or one sort of string that that has created a sentence. Um, and then it, it knows that that sentence has been created, and once those that, that's happened, it then sends it out to a centralized computer that says, "Hey, this person has made this sentence uh, via you know these objects, and uh, now create the creature." And then that goes that central database does like sort of the animations on the wall and a lot of the other sort of like visual feedback um, that's given for you know on the tablet and on the, the front facing portion of it now. Can I also
2: take this chance to? Uh, Plug uh, Mike Knutful, who is a Brooklyn Research member. Yes. And oh, he did amazing work. He did that. a lot of the design for manufacturing, wow. and also want to mention that this. So we are the commercial agency portion of it, but there's a much larger, I guess, the co-research space, which is a lot of members that who are members of the nonprofit, and we do a lot of, I guess, in sourcing.
0: How uh, many How many members do you guys have?
2: Fifteen ish. Yeah. And yeah. so a lot of the times, a lot of the people here have, like, fairly exquisite skills in yeah. certain things. And we grab them and ask them to, like, hey, would you like to work on this project with us? Can you please work on this project with us? That's great. Be a member. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
0: I mean, it seems like you guys have created your own community through the nonprofit to help with the complications of projects like this.
1: I mean, I wish that we could claim that we had like this brilliant plan from the beginning, Um, but I mean, it's worked out I mean, you said
0: that the nonprofit was an early
2: It was, but I think that,
1: but it was something that we knew that we wanted to be able to do. We applied for nonprofit status very early on, and then we got it, you know, it didn't, it took about like a year, I think, to get the the approval. And then after that, we had a lot of meetings with the uh, initial board, and it just, it kind of just, we couldn't come to a consensus on how we wanted it to operate until much later when we realized that we wanted it to be uh, have a specific educational mission, and it still does that today, doing you know programming like this, uh, public talks, and also workshops and stuff yes, like that. Yes, like
2: our workshop tomorrow on projection mapping, <laughs> 7 o'clock, <laughs> and yeah, our workshop line, yeah. on September 15th to use Fusion 360 for digital fabrication.
0: I mean, do, wow. you, do you guys see the, this kind of outreach as not being available in other places? Like, where do you see the nonprofit um, space being in, like, a couple of years, ideally? like.
2: Um, I think one thing we've all wanted is, well, one thing that we've talked about is we want to do more kind of independent research projects mm-hmm. or, like, group research projects. I don't mean independent in terms of, like, one person. I mean independent as in, like, kind of going along a trajectory that's a little bit less well-traveled and trying to use uh, kind of like n- fairly new recent commercial technology and try to find ways to do interesting things with them.
0: Uh, a layman question. In that scenario, is there a client or are you self-driven?
2: I would say hopefully self, self-driven. Mm-hmm. I mean,
3: self-driven? I mean, the client is humanity. Um. <laughs> Always. <laughs> But there could so, be like some like benefactor or somebody that could. Would... I
1: mean, I think we've come up with different models, right? Like yeah. Where uh, what we would we've kind of dubbed research groups in the theoretical is that these are groups that have a, a mission in a specific kind of problem space or or discipline, and you know the funding from that is either going to be something that we have to write grants for to get funding, or it could be privately funded through an mm-hmm. institution or. Corporation or, or a wealthy so, benefactor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, you know, for, for me, like, I have my personal interests in um, wanting to, to start like a print research group on print technologies because mm-hmm. I love making prints um, and using as much new technology to do that. Johnny has had some really interesting ideas uh, about um, translation, uh, machine learning, and, and translation technologies for um, making people talk to each other that couldn't talk to each other in interesting ways.
0: Like physically can't talk to each other,
1: or uh,
2: no, I mean not necessarily physically, but yeah, that could that could be there. I don't,
1: I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to expand on that. If you want to. Oh, it's going to be great. Okay. See, so, yeah, I think that that would be an ideal is if we could um, be able to support things like that um, um, with a with a membership community. With, I mean, I think the membership. I mean, I, I think it's also the way that we've kind of. Uh, envisioned that as a future prospect as something that um, anyone could potentially come to us with a proposal for a research group mm-hmm. and then if it's something that we think has, you know, feels credible or viable in that way and that something that we think that we could be behind and try to help get funding for um, that we'd love to be able to facilitate that and, and foster that kind of work um, but
0: yeah. cool think we're about time Do you guys have any questions thank you to all of brooklyn research for being our guest for this interview and for being our partner and host for the talk series tradecraft Listeners can hear more about Brooklyn Research's education mission, membership model, and programming at brooklynresearch.org and see many of their fabrication projects at brooklynresearch.com. A final credit to the Bryce Bagia Quintet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji." And please check in and subscribe to future episodes at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com.